Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual doubleheader today. We'll hear from Christopher Leonard, author of a new book in the decade-long regime of easy money from the Federal Reserve. And then from Leah Upi, a political theorist who spent her childhood in the late days of communism and the early days of neoliberalism in Albania and found herself a fan of neither. I'm sorry I've got nothing in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, partly because I don't know what can be said about it other than to condemn its brutality. Yes, we did a lot to provoke it via NATO expansion and support for anti-Russian activities in Ukraine, but there's still no excuse for a war like this. I also hope those rooting for some sort of U.S. or NATO military intervention don't get their way. Since 2010, the Federal Reserve has been running a hyper-easy monetary policy, with short-term interest rates kept close to zero and the central bank pumping out trillions in freshly created money. All this hasn't done much to stimulate the real economy. Did you feel prosperous in those pre-COVID years? but it sure has stimulated the financial markets. My first guest, Christopher Leonard, is a financial journalist whose book, The Lords of Easy Money, is just out from Simon & Schuster. His previous book was Cokeland, a look at that dynasty's funding of the right. This book is a close-up look at that hyper-easy monetary policy, with an emphasis on Thomas Honig, former president of the Kansas City branch of the Fed, who fought a lonely war against the policy a decade ago. Christopher Leonard. Before we get talking to the details of the book, it's been quite a reversal. Uh, you focus on this guy, Honig. People like him from the heartland, small town, those guys always liked easy money. They were the roots for the populace. And then in the urban banker class, loved tight money. And now everything seems turned on his head. That is such a good point. The original populist movement to create a central bank, the original political fight over the politics of money back in the early 1900s, the populist forces were aligned for easy money whereas the elite bankers on the East Coast wanted a tighter money supply. But like so much about the modern Federal Reserve, the argument's kind of been turned over on its head in in the sense that the last decade has been defined by not even easy money, but ultra easy money and these really radical experimental policies in doing that. It has really benefited the same sort of elite financier interests. They've benefited from it more than the working class or the middle class. It's just one of those bizarre paradoxes. Similarly, you know, it used to be thought that easy money was supposed to benefit the working class. I was never convinced that uh, actually worked out that way, but that's what the line was. And tight money was supposed to, to benefit the elites, but it doesn't seem to have worked that way either. You know, the working class has seen years of stagnant or declining wages. Uh, elites have gotten richer and richer. And even during, you know, this period of the corona crisis, now we've got 7.5% inflation. There are decent nominal wage gains, but they're getting eaten alive by inflation. Yet the billionaires are just been breaking it in. Not just the politics, but the distributional effects have been turned on their heads. Exactly. And and that okay, that's a big reason I wrote this book. I, I really wanted to explain why the last decade has been so different. If we kind of turned back the clock and looked at what the Federal Reserve did, it, it's the central bank. Its main job is to create and manage our currency. And the Fed is most famous for raising or lowering interest rates, sort of like the engineers inside a nuclear power plant, raising or lowering the temperature of the core to produce electricity. And if the economy was overheating, the Fed would lower the temperature by tightening the money supply. And if the economy was too slow, the Fed would heat things up by loosening the money supply. And so that's why people thought easy money or low interest rates was good for the working class because it would, it would stimulate economic growth. But that really is the old model. And it is not an exaggeration to say everything changed in 2008, 2009 with the global financial crisis. This book really starts after that. In, in 2010, when the Federal Reserve breaks the rules of, of the old game and charts a new path, and, and the easiest way to understand it is the Fed takes down those interest rates it controls to zero. They had never really been zero for very long before. I mean, the rates had touched zero very briefly, but the Fed pushes rates to zero, pins them there for seven years, 
while at the same time engaging in, in this experiment in money printing that they call quantitative easing, which is to pump trillions of dollars into the banking system at the very moment interest rates are at zero. This changes the entire equation. Managing money is in a totally new realm now to the point you're making. Yes, this benefited the richest of the rich Americans. And I think the easiest way to understand it is that this whole policy of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing was geared toward stoking asset prices for stocks, bonds, real estate, asset prices. And just when you break it down, the wealthiest 1% of Americans own about 30% of all the assets in the country. The rest of us, the lower 50% of wage earners, own about 7% of the assets. So when you have a program like this that's stoking asset prices, it is necessarily benefiting the, the very rich over everybody else. Well, you do um, lay out the background for this, uh, historical background, uh, going back into the Volcker years with the, the Penn Square crisis. And I've been around long enough that I remember the Penn Square crisis and the continental Illinois almost going under um, because of Penn Square. We thought at the time that was an anomaly. But in some ways, that really became a foretaste or a model for what was going to come. Years and years of ever bigger bailouts of large financial institutions. They never really pay the price for their own errors because, um, as they know, they're going to get bailed out. No question. The Penn Square banking crisis and then the much larger almost bank failure of Continental Bank in Illinois, basically these banks failed. Then the government stepped in and bailed them out. And there was this hearing and the senator said, you know, it's almost like this bank is too big to fail. And that was one of the first times that the, that phrase had really been used, you know, in the vernacular popularly and that kind of coined the term too big to fail. And what's so instructive about that is that those banks got to the position where they failed for a reason. And it was because of the great inflation of the 1970s. And, and when we look back on that era and we think about the inflation of the 1970s, we think about high prices for you know gasoline, food, television sets, cars. But there was another kind of inflation going on back then, which was the inflation of assets, oil, farmland, real estate. These prices were rising and rising and rising, and the banks were doing riskier and riskier loans based on those assets. And that's kind of the, the forgotten story of the 1970s. And then the Fed had to step in and raise interest rates to kill inflation. But when they did that, it created a huge banking crisis because all these asset prices also fell. And this is an instructive moment for us. Because what we saw over the next few decades is, is a sort of history repeating itself, but on an ever larger scale. And what would happen is, is the Fed would keep money too easy for too long, and it would stoke asset inflation. So think dot-com bubble, which burst. Think housing bubble, which burst. And then over the last decade of the 2010s, the Fed once again is stoking these asset prices. And now we're in this position where we're having not just this asset inflation, but price inflation. Understanding what happened back then and how these too big to fail banks came to be is really important for understanding where we are today. And, and, you know, I don't mean to gloss over a super important point you made, which is yes, the bankers know they get to make money on the way up when these asset prices rise and then they get bailed out on the way down. Now, you mentioned price inflation versus asset inflation. Under Greenspan, price inflation looked to be under control. They had that productivity miracle, um, but then they didn't really care about the asset inflation. Just going back to the Penn Square model again. So you'd have these periodic financial crises, and they just came you know, with regularity starting in the early 80s. Every time there was a bailout, they just went back to the old way of doing things. I mean, you can understand in the crisis the reason, pump a lot of money, keep things from going under. We don't want a rerun of 1929 to 32. But then they never supervise, they never regulate, they never you know, tighten up on what these guys do, and they just set up a foundation for yet another bigger crisis. You're exactly right. The bailouts have become a baked in part of the system and they keep getting larger and larger in scale. You mentioned this character, Thomas Honig. He was a federal uh, reserve official who in 2010, he voted against this policy. He said, we should not keep interest rates at zero. We should not pump trillions of dollars into Wall Street through quantitative easing because this guy had seen what had happened in the 70s. Yeah, he was on the scene at Penn Square, right? He was the Federal Reserve Bank supervisor who had to send the letter to Penn Square saying, sorry, you're going bankrupt. Uh, yeah, he was there. He was on the front lines. And he's consistent on this argument. I mean, he later became a bank regulator at the FDIC and was talking about breaking up these two big to fail banks because he's saying, you know, basically taxpayers are on the hook to bail these institutions out for their very risky lending. 
And that's an unworkable system financially, but also just socially, because everybody feels like the system is rigged. And that's what this guy's argument was. And, And he was on the losing side of this argument. There was a huge policy decision made inside the Fed that the Fed would only target price inflation. And, and as long as price inflation never got hot, they would continue to keep interest rates low and, and to pump money into the banking system. And that is inarguably what stoked the housing bubble of the 2000s. It's, it's easy and even appropriate to focus on the greedy bankers and the mortgage brokers. But when you step back, you realize the Fed incentivizes that behavior by pushing these banks to take the riskier loans and then guaranteeing that the institutions will be bailed out when the system crashes. That system kind of reached its peak in the COVID crash of 2020, which I don't think people quite appreciate what the Fed did. The Fed printed about 300 years worth of new money in a few months in 2020, and it did it in a way to directly bail out some of the riskiest speculative bets made on Wall Street. These institutions know just beyond a shadow of a doubt that they will be bailed out on the way down. Going back to Honig, who is, uh, in some sense, the star of your book, he's perceived at the time with all his dissents as a crank. And the institution of the Federal Reserve is one that's pretty much dominated by the chairman, or the chair, I should say. Dissents are rare of that sort. Uh, And he kept saying, no, 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 no. Um, So he was really going against the culture of the institution and its history. It's so interesting. And I came across this guy by accident when I started researching what the Fed has been doing over the last decade. And I just saw that, you know, the vote to undertake quantitative easing was a vote of 11 against one, which as a reporter, you're just sort of like, well, that's an interesting tally. You know, why was only one person against it? And what was that person's deal? Tom Honig voted no at every single meeting of this policy committee at the Fed during 2010. The politics of money is controlled by a committee of 12 voting members inside the Federal Reserve. They meet every six weeks. This is the committee that you hear about, you know, the Fed raised interest rates today or cut interest rates. This committee decides it. Tom Honig voted eight times in a row against what the committee was doing, which, as he said, is really jarringly atypical for this committee of the Federal Reserve. And this guy was remembered as a crank. And also more than that, he was remembered as an inflation hawk that he warned, oh, if we do this, we'll see hyperinflation. And it turned out he was wrong because there really wasn't price inflation during the 2010s. But when you go back and dig through the actual historical record, you see the caricature that was built up around this guy, this dissenter was, was incorrect. First of all, he'd been on the policy committee since 1991 and barely ever voted no. It was this year, 2010, when he voted no at every meeting. And and the reasons why had really very little to do with price inflation and everything to do with the fact that the Fed was going to pump up another massive asset bubble, and it was going to pursue policies that would benefit the richest of the rich, the biggest of the big banks, while making our economy more fragile by laying the groundwork for these economic crashes. That was the argument he made. And he made it based on you know his own firsthand experience, having been at the Fed since the 1970s and seeing these bubbles get created and burst before. I came to the conclusion his warnings have all been borne out. I'm speaking with Christopher Leonard, author of The Lords of Easy Money from Simon & Schuster. The Bernanke years are interesting because Bernanke made his academic reputation by writing about the financial mechanisms that propagated the Great Depression, cascading waves of bank failures. And in the early days of the 2008 crisis, I remember thinking it's good we have this guy with this background setting policy because he understands. But then there's one thing to do that in the crisis, but they never stopped. It just became a permanent operating mode. That's right. And I'll tell you, I felt the exact same way too. I mean, I was an associated press reporter in St. Louis during the crash. And I was very glad that this guy who'd studied the depression was in charge. But I have come to a very different conclusion about Ben Bernanke's leadership now that I've gone back and really read through the internal debates and and looked at the consequences of what he did, not just during the crash of 0809. As as you point out, it's one thing to respond in, in the heat of a crisis. That's why we have a Federal Reserve, to step in and be the lender of last resort when there's a bank panic. But what happened from 2010 beyond is a different animal. That's the Federal Reserve saying, okay, we're not just the lender of resort in in the time of a crisis. We're going to try to be the sort of driving engine of economic growth. We're going to use money printing as a jobs program. 
And at the time, this, this is what really gets me when you go back and look at the debates, the Fed knew that a necessary consequence of its action was going to be that it would stoke up these asset prices, that it was going to stoke up stock prices and bond prices, real estate prices, benefit the very, very rich 10 times more than anybody else. But they pursued these policies anyway for political reasons to appear that they were acting. Ben Bernanke's memoir was entitled The Courage to Act. And and I think that that's very much the public image that he tried to put on what the Fed was doing. But unfortunately, there are a lot of side consequences of of this policy of radical easy money for the banks. There's a scene in in the book where you uh, recount uh, Richard Fisher, the head of the Dallas Fed, saying he'd been talking to somebody at Texas Instruments. And they said they're using their surplus cash to buy back stock, not R&D or investing in equipment, but just buying back their stock. And Bernanke waves him away, saying, you don't have a PhD in economics. You know, this is just anecdata, as they say. This arrogance of uh, the people around Bernanke, that they thought that they were just the smartest people on earth because they had their economics PhDs, whereas the real world experience of Fisher and Texas Instruments was dismissed. Without question, there, there was a reckless hubris that defined Ben Bernanke's chairmanship of the Federal Reserve. And it's really all laid out in black and white in the meetings themselves. Okay. That anecdote you bring up is super important because, you know, the middle part of this book is I'm trying to describe what happens when our economy was being operated under this regime of 0% interest and trillions of dollars printed in the banking system. And this Fed official, Richard Fisher, was bringing up the obvious, which was that this kind of cheap debt and, and this incentive system that pushes the banks toward making riskier and riskier loans and investments that's not a great recipe for job creation. And and this company, Texas Instruments, that Richard Fisher was talking about, did what so many other companies did, which was they borrowed money in these cheap debt markets, like for corporate leverage loans. And they just use that cheap debt to buy back their stock. You give the money directly to shareholders. These policies really just encourage that kind of financialization game instead of actual construction of factories or training workers or improving infrastructure or any of these broader policies that actually create real economic growth, this just uh, increased these financialization methods. And and this guy, Richard Fisher, was pointing out that Texas Instruments wasn't going to create a single new job. It was just going to borrow money and buy back its stock. And, And he was shot down in an instructive way, as you said. It was like, Sorry, but the CFO of Texas Instruments doesn't have a PhD in economics, so he doesn't understand what we're doing. And I find that that line of attack is used against Fed critics constantly, that you're just not smart enough to understand what these people are doing. And it takes a bit of time to get up to the speed on some of the mechanics of what they do, but it's not rocket science at all. It's interesting that uh, when the coronavirus crisis hit, uh, there were so many companies who had been wasting all this money, borrowing money, emptying their treasuries to buy back their own stock. Uh, they hit a wall. And, you know, the airlines in particular, I think Boeing as well, um, they were on the verge of failure because they'd spent so much money buying back their own stock. And then the Fed essentially bailed that whole model out. So here we are again, almost two years later, and companies are buying back their stock with both hands. So we haven't learned a damn thing out of this uh, entire history. Well, that's exactly right. Or if if we have learned the damn thing, it's the wrong thing, which is that you need to bail these people out at at every turn. And okay, when I say that there are these negative consequences of easy money, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Between 2010 and 2020, corporate debt reached record levels. It almost doubled. It jumps from $6 trillion to $10 trillion. And these are very risky loans, like leveraged loans that, you know, just like the home loans of the previous decade, they're packaged and sold in these securitized products. Wall Street fees hit a record high as this debt is packaged and resold. And those loans were not spent on virtuous pursuits. They were spent on buybacks and takeovers and financial engineering. And if you want to know the evidence for what you just said, let's look at the overall economic growth in America during this decade. Very weak. Let's look at the productivity growth. Very weak. Let's look at wage growth. Extremely weak. Yes, most of these leveraged loans 
It's used for stock buybacks, for mergers, the sort of low-hanging, easy fruit, rather than uh, opening a new factory or branching out into a new market or doing research and development. It just incentivizes financialization of, of the economy. It makes the system more fragile. You've got these really indebted corporations colliding with the market trauma of, of COVID hitting. And what I mean to say is like, you've got this huge event forcing everybody to close their doors and, and that's bad for business, but it's, it's made even worse by the fact that these companies have to meet their interest payments on this record level of corporate debt. And the Fed responded by just expanding its bailout. It, it literally purchased corporate junk debt for the first time in its history. It encourages the risky loans. And then when the things go south, the Fed uses this public resource of the dollar to bail out these private actors. And unfortunately, it doesn't just bail them out. It encourages that behavior. So after COVID hits, corporate debt reaches a new record and stock prices hit a new record and and we become even more leveraged and and the bubble gets yet bigger. Now, you said earlier that the Fed was uh, trying to use QE as something of a jobs program. And, you know, in their defense, I would say that a jobs program is properly the role of fiscal policy. You know, the federal government should allocate money for a jobs program or infrastructure investment or whatever to stimulate the real sector. By the Fed's own evidence, QE does almost nothing for the real sector. In a sense, it's stepping into this vacuum of institutional decline. Um, and it's you know, one of the few institutions in American society that still kind of works. <laughs> now, if we look at co- compared to Congress... Yes, that's really important point. I mean, and I've, you know, my previous book was about Coke Industries and kind of co- corporate power and how special interests have taken so much power over our democratic institutions and really distorted the agenda of our, our democratic institutions. And a big consequence of this is as our democratic institutions fall into a state of paralysis and dysfunction where they are today and only increasingly so. We rely on these non-democratic institutions to do the, the country's business. You know, We rely on the Supreme Court to arbitrate a lot of our policy disputes. We rely on the U.S. military to handle more of our like foreign affairs. And we rely on the Federal Reserve to handle economic affairs. And, and all these institutions, they're insulated from democratic pressure. Let's put it that way. You know, They can move quickly. Uh, they don't have elected representatives. They're, they're non-democratic. I think this Fed is a great case study as to why that doesn't work. The Fed, again, it has one superpower. It can create new money. And it's been using that superpower to an unprecedented level. But it can't build a bridge. It can't train a worker. It can't build new infrastructure. It can only encourage banks to take on more debt. And we've exhausted that model of economic growth. I'm not the only person who thinks that. I mean, the head of of the European Central Bank was this Italian central banker, Mario Draghi, who became famous back in, I think it was 2010 or 2011, when he said, we're going to do whatever it takes, right? The central bank's going to step in and print money, and we will do whatever it takes. And then Little and lesser known was the fact that Draghi came out in 2019 and said, we have exhausted this model. We can't rely on the central banks. Democratic institutions have got to step in and do the hard work, taxing, spending, reinvesting, getting the right balance of, of regulation versus you know allowing companies to grow and innovate. As we neglect that hard work, the bill for doing so, I think, just gets higher and higher every year. You quote towards the end of the book, a Swiss central banker told Honig, we are responsible for the long run so the short run can take care of itself. That reminded me of a comment that an old friend of mine who used to work at the New York Fed made. He said, um, the view inside the Fed was that bankers may come and go, but we're here to do the long-term thinking for the class. Nobody is really doing the long-term thinking uh, at all these days. No question about it. And that's what's so dangerous you know, when the Fed starts focusing on the short term and it's trying to you know, sort of prove its heroism in the moment through these bailouts or opening up the money spigots for the banks, what it's doing is getting very small short-term gains at the cost of piling up long-term risks. The current chairman of the Federal Reserve is a guy named Jay Powell. And when he came in in 2012, he was making this exact argument that we are building up long-term risks for these very short-term small gains, but they continue to do it. And, and that is kind of a pathology of America today across the corporate sector, and, and I think in central banking too, 
that there's this laser focus on, on, on the short term. And we're in a real bind on that front today because the Fed is paying the price tag for a lot of these policies. The Fed is going to have to tighten the money supply or allow price inflation to continue to kind of entrench itself and grow. And, and so now the Fed is going to have to do the really hard thing and, and make these hard choices uh, that, that could come at a, at a big consequence, or you know it can just focus, uh, continue to focus on the short-term gains and, and let these risks pile up and, and pile up going forward. But there is no question in my mind that there's a real lack of long-term thinking. I was Christopher Leonard, author of The Lords of Easy Money, just out from Simon & Schuster. To develop a point that came up in the interview, tight money can destroy jobs and incomes, but loose money is not very good at boosting them. For that, you need an active fiscal policy, jobs programs, infrastructure investment, and income supports in bad times. But our political system is too broken and debased to manage that. So here we are with innumerable bubbles and 7.5% inflation. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Free Money by Patti Smith from her first album, Horses. That's the bit I use as the epigraph for my essay on modern monetary theory in, on, at, Jacobin. And now, communism, post-communism, and Albania. Leo Upi is a political theorist who was born in 1979 and spent her childhood in the last act of Albanian communism, which fell in 1990, and then her adolescence in the turbulent years of imposed neoliberalism before leaving her homeland. She's just out with a memoir of that period, Free, A Child and a Country at the End of History, published by W.W. Norton. She's a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics and adjunct associate professor of philosophy at the Australian National University. Leia Upi, that's spelled Y-P-I. So this is not the book you set out to write. Uh, am I correct in that? You wanted to write something more of a compare and contrast volume and you ended up uh, with a memoir. Yeah, that's right. It was going to be a book of ideas and it was going to be an exploration of the concept of freedom in different intellectual traditions. I have been long convinced that even rival intellectual traditions like liberalism and socialism have a core concern in the idea of freedom. And I wanted to explore freedom as a promise, but also as a kind of disillusionment in different political circumstances. And the project developed and turned into a more and more personal one as I was looking for examples and for ideas and for the sense of both freedom as a promise, but also freedom as a disillusionment. And they came from the context in which I grew up with. You were pretty young when, when the Albanian transition occurred, as the, the World Bank word. What do you remember of that time as a kind of environment, the political environment you grew up in. The imperialists were bad, the revisionists were bad, only Albania held fast. Is that pretty much the political common sense you grew up with? Yeah, very much so. Uh, Albania was a very isolated country at the time in which I was growing up, and uh, it had fallen out from almost all other socialist countries in the world as well. Uh, it had already, obviously, it was an enemy of the Western, what were called Western imperialists of Britain and uh, United States and so on. But in the 80s, all the alliances that Albania had throughout the second half of the 20th century constructed with other socialist governments had also broken, often because they were accused of moderating too much or, or abandoning the principles or uh, the orthodoxies that Albania shared. And so we were the last, it's often called the last Stalinist outpost in Europe, because it really was a country in which the cult of the individual was very strong and in which there was never a critique of Stalinism in the way in which there had been in other Soviet or Soviet sphere of influence, let's say. 
So it was isolated, but it was also nurturing in the younger generations like mine, this sense of pride and collective achievement for being one of the very small countries that had succeeded in liberating themselves from the fascists and the Nazis during the Second World War. Albania didn't have any outside intervention, neither by the Allies nor by the Soviets. And for being proudly socialist on the way to becoming communists and leading by example the other countries that also shared this imperialist struggle. And so that was a rhetoric that I grew up with. It was one of hardship on the one hand, because you couldn't deny that hardship and the isolation, the fact that people couldn't travel and so on. But on the other hand, coupled with the idea that these were necessary sacrifices for the sake of a freedom that we enjoyed and that we had a sense of responsibility to give to other parts of the world as well. And you grew up very much with the sense you were free. Very much, yeah. The idea was that this was one of the few examples of free countries in the world because socialism made it free. And it had emerged from centuries of being subject of various empires and various enemies, but finally found freedom in socialism and had a kind of responsibility and a duty to set the example for other countries to become themselves also socialists. You don't go into this in the book, really, but uh, how is it that Albania ended up in this unique path? What is it about the country's history that uh, made it uh, such an outlier? First of all, it's important to say that Albania is a recent state in terms of how it was created and also in terms of the before the actual create on the actual sovereignty of the state, that the intellectual currents and the intellectual history that led to the creation of that state is also one that matured and developed slightly later compared to other parts of the region. It was part of the Ottoman Empire for the last 500 years. And Albanian elites were often very well integrated in the elites of the Ottoman Empire. And so the fate of this territory that we now call Albania, which was obviously at the time not really known as such as Albania, it was divided between the various vilayets, the administrative units of the Ottoman Empire. The fate of those territories was always connected to the fate of the empire. And in fact, there was a sense that it's only when the Ottoman Empire collapsed for good and that it became clear that this entity was over, then Albanians realized that unless they mobilized and rallied around a national project of state building, they would just be incorporated by the various neighbors who were much more advanced in their own nation building projects. And so Greece in the south and uh, Serbia and what was then the kingdom of Yugoslavia at the north. And of course, they were in the Balkans then as a result of the various Balkan wars with the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Turkish or Russian Ottoman Empire war, all the great powers of Europe were contending for influence and hegemony in this area, in the Balkans more generally, but that also obviously applied to Albania. So the state became independent in 1912, which means it's a very recent state if you think that the communists came to power in 1946, the time in which this country was an independent state were only those years between 1912 and 1946. And it was a state that was emerging from the chaos and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, but also from the fact that there hadn't really ever been a modern central state and a modern central administration. And that this was done with great difficulty, with an effort to try and follow linguistic lines and to try and incorporate all the those who would identify as people who spoke this language and have shared this culture. And so the projects of nation building were very much projects of that kind who would say, look, you might be divided in these three religions, but you have this language in common and it's important to build a state and at great sacrifice. And I say at great cost, because often there were these projects in which part of the uh, Albanian ethnic minorities were incorporated by the kingdom of Yugoslavia. And this is what happened to Kosovo, for example. And when the communists came, they found themselves having to realize a kind of anti-capitalist communist project in a country that had never really had any industrial development and not just that, but had also never really had a modern state. And so it was a very strange project because it was on the one hand a project of just building stuff and kind of consolidating the state, coupled with this idea that this is supposed to happen, at least in theory, you know, if you follow the kind of the texts and the classical Marxist critiques of capitalism, this is supposed to happen in industrial context, in context where there is a developed bourgeoisie and a developed proletariat and so on. And none of that was the case in Albania. This socialist project and the nation building project went hand in hand. And I think this gave the Albanian socialist project, a kind of nationalistic features that we know and we associate it with and also determined this character of very much being protective and looking over its shoulders um, to protect the kind of territorial integrity of the nation. And you grew up with also with this sense that um, this was a transitional phase to true communism, which would be the realm of pure freedom. I guess a lot of cynical Westerners would think that was just not something really that people believed in their hearts and bones. But it seemed that uh, you and a lot of your, uh, your friends and, and cohort did believe that. 
yeah, I think it was an important part of the of the rhetoric, but also of the classical theories in a way. This idea that even a socialist society was still a society that was divided by class lines, and in fact, in the socialist rhetoric of the time, and also in the socialist projects of the time, this idea of class division was very important because the class enemy was the enemy against which society mobilized. And this is exactly what created these difficulties in my family, was the fact that my parents came from social classes, or rather inherited their class status from uh, the bourgeoisie, in my mother's case, and her family were old property owners, and the aristocracy in my grandmother's case, and my father's case was a family of landowning elites, and also intellectually quite relevant, both within the empire and in these first early years of the Albanian modern state. So yeah, these class divisions were very important, and they were part of the rhetoric. The word biography appears a lot, especially in the early portion of the book. What was the political significance of biography in the Albanian regime? This is connected to this previous question. So biography was something that had to do with the family that you were born in. The fact that you were born in this family told you something about the political attitudes of that family and by inference of yourself as well within that political system. And so biography was something that was often asked of people to declare, to say, you know, what was their biography? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it clean? Was it stained? Was it people who had gone through or revised? or And determined what kind of opportunities people would have in society as a result of that. And so my parents, for example, who came from these families with not so good biographies, weren't allowed to study what they wanted. They often said they wouldn't have been allowed to study at all if they had been in a different period. This was a time at which they were studying, was a time in which Albania was still in a coalition with the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was going through this desalinization campaign, and so it was a little bit easier for them. Biography and, and your biographical background is what determined your position in the world and the opportunities that you would be given as a citizen of the socialist state. Your family, you really didn't know much of the truth of their biographies, did you? Growing up, uh, it wasn't until uh, the regime change that uh, you really learned the truth of their backgrounds. Describe them. Yeah, so when I was growing up uh, as a child, I always knew that there was something about me that was slightly different and that stood out and made me stand out from other children around me. I was, uh, for a start, speaking French from a very early age. In fact, French was the first language that I was addressed in, and my grandmother spoke to me. But she, I knew, wasn't French, had never lived in France, had we'd never gone to France. For me, it was slightly mysterious that she had this. And it was only after the system changed that I discovered that the reason she was speaking French to me was that she came from this elite Ottoman Empire family in which French was the lingua franca, as it was for all the aristocracy of the period in Europe all over, not just the I mean, so Western Europe, but also in Eastern Europe and also in the Ottoman Empire. And for my grandmother, this was a way of preserving her identity. There were times in which my mom, for example, would talk about these fantasies of her uncle who was making boats and thinking about land that the family owned and so on. She presented these all as dreams that she'd been, things that she'd imagined with him until I discovered later that, in fact, she came from this background of former uh, property owners who were also capitalists, some, some of the earlier capitalists in Albania, so who were extremely wealthy people who had lost their property in the, um, in the aftermath of the arrival of the socialists. And so both my mother's side and my father's side were dissident families, but dissident for different reasons. So in one case, because of wealth and uh, background to do with property, and in the other case, because they were integrated in these structures of first the Ottoman Empire and then the Albanian modern state, but on the wrong side of history, as it were. And another thing that was really important and that was part of my background was the fact that uh, a former Albanian prime minister and also minister of interior who had been pivotal at the point in which Albania was occupied by the fascists in, during the Second World War, had been pivotal in transferring the sovereignty of Albania to the fascists. And he had the same name and surname as my father. And I was often asking about him because we spoke about him in school or you would hear about him in history pages. He was very much the equivalent of the Vichy government, some collaborationist government in um, other parts of Europe. And I asked my parents how come, and they always said to me it was a coincidence that he had the same name and so until I discovered that, again, when the regime fell, it's truth that he was actually my great-grandfather and that I had never been told that we had someone with that background in the family. Your mother was um, something of a Thatcherite even before the regime changed, right? She tried to imitate uh, her hairstyle. Yeah, my mother had a conception of freedom that I often think of as a kind of quintessentially classical liberal idea of freedom. She was a dissident. She was always a dissident in her mind. She was a kind of a rebel. And she also very much believed in this idea of political freedom combined with economic freedom. And for her, the greatest oppression was the one that came from state institutions. She was a free market libertarian before Albania was even a free market. 
but whose obviously ideas followed the path and the change in the country after 1990. And she then had a chance to become involved politically and to, uh, as it were, implement these ideas in the system. But whereas your father had more egalitarian leanings, even if he wasn't uh, a total communist. I often use these characters in my book, my mother and my father, as uh, ways of talking about these different ideas of freedom. So while my mother had this conception of freedom as freedom from, so to be free is to be free, left alone, to decide, you know, what to do, what to say, where to go, and to have the freedom to associate, and so on, all the kind of classical liberal freedoms. My father had a more robust social idea of freedom, and for him, and which was a more kind of positive one, often contrasted in political theory between negative and positive freedom. And my father's idea of freedom was an idea of freedom too. So it wasn't enough to be left alone to do certain things, but you also had to have the opportunities to realize these freedoms. And if those opportunities were lacking, then you weren't really free either. And so he's in the book representative of this generation of almost 1968ers, but in a different context, who were very suspicious of free market rhetoric and also suspicious of this idea that that free market rhetoric is sufficient to organize and to guarantee freedom for everyone. And his was a more, uh, as I say, social democratic, robust conception of positive freedom. I'm speaking with Leah Upi, a political theorist and author of Free from Norton. And of course, you were pretty young, only 10 or 11. But um, did you have any sense that uh, things are going to change so dramatically or just one day in December 1990, it just seemed like the whole world changed overnight? Yeah, that was the case. Even though we had a, ch- a sense that things were happening in the rest of Europe, we didn't think that Albania was sufficiently integrated to Eastern Europe to benefit from the changes that they were going through. So, you know, we, people would have heard of Glasnost perestroika, and then afterwards they would have heard of the Berlin Wall and other changes in Eastern Europe. But because our path had often been slightly disconnected from other countries, it was always seen as impossible that something like that change would also arrive to Albania. And even when it did arrive to Albania, it wasn't clear that it was a definitive change. It was often seen as a transition from the inside or something that was managed from others. And so it was uh, yeah, very different experience in Albania. But then it also happened. And when it happened, it did happen overnight. And people found it hard to articulate and to understand what exactly the change involved. And it went from one day believing in Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Hender Hoxha to day after getting rid of Marxism as a theory and as an ideology to suddenly endorsing free market liberalism and political pluralism as conceptions of what society was about. And as you put it, one day the, the market economy replaced dialectical materialism in the curriculum. Absolutely. And this is exactly, it really happened like that overnight. And it also symbolically really happened like that, because I remember there was a moment in my neighborhood where everybody was burning books and everybody was kind of coming from their houses with a book of Marx, a book of Lenin, a book of Enver Hodge. And I, I went home and I said to my dad, you know, do we have enough books to burn about Marxism? And my dad said, no, we don't burn books in this house. And in the end, we kept our books, but we were very rare in doing so. We literally, there was this rebellion against what well, I say, the concepts as well as everything else, the history and the politics and so on. And this keenness to embrace these completely different alternative concepts of how society should be organized and how we should think about freedom. But then uh, the World Bank became the master of the country for a period. Yeah, this is the period of uh, what is often called the transition, the structural reform period, in which the urge was for the country to move from this centralized, heavily commanded uh, economy to one that was completely open to free enterprise and free trade and so on. And there were recipes that came from both the IMF and the World Bank with how that needed to be done. And the name that was given to that change was that of shock therapy. So the idea was that you have to do these very quick, rapid interventions, which it was acknowledged would have a social cost for for people. But the idea was that these were necessary reforms that had to be done. And if they were done very quickly, they would also deliver very quickly for everyone. And uh, and this is how Albanian society opened up, which uh, raised the costs hugely socially in terms of both a lot of people leaving the country or attempting to leave the country because of unemployment and because of all the social problems that were occurring as a result of these reforms, but also inside the country with people taking up different professions that uh, some of them were obviously illegal or problematic simply because they found themselves with no other opportunities and with no other way to make a living. And so drug smuggling rose very quickly or sex trafficking rose very quickly or people smuggling across the border to Italy or Greece became all business 
businesses that we people would talk about as though they were normal professions simply because I didn't have another way of thinking about making money. And your father was placed in the position of having to fire people, which he didn't like. He found that extremely difficult because he had grown up with this sense of being worried about what the system would do to him and being and really felt like a victim of a system that had been his entire life. He had been a victim of the system and a victim of people making administrative decisions that affected him. And suddenly he found himself in a position of responsibility, but in a strange position of responsibility because he had to implement these decisions that he didn't really approve of necessarily or that he made himself at the level of laws. They were simply policies that were internalized and adopted from the outside. And he was a CEO at one point of the port of Duras and had to sack hundreds of workers. And he found that very, very difficult because every morning we'd have a crowd of these workers come to our house and complain and say, please don't do this to me. You know, I don't have another way of living. And if, I, if you cut my job, if you cut my salary, then how can I survive and how can my family survive? And he found that immediate experience of the high social cost of these reforms really difficult to take. And then the country got overtaken by mutual funds and pyramid schemes, which sound a little like uh, crypto today, but on a much larger scale. What was that like? In, on the one hand, that was the arrival of this new ideology of freedom and this idea of individual responsibility, which required also taking responsibility for your investments and kind of thinking about yourself as a wealth generator, as it were. And so the background, the context was one of a country that didn't have a sufficiently developed financial sector, because before that, transactions had been very primitive, one-on-one, -on -one, kind of interpersonal, to one where uh, there was this promise of these new companies that would give people very high return for their savings, for depositing their savings. And so there was this new ideology of you need to save and invest so that your money can accumulate and grow and that's how capitalism works and that's what it means to be in a capitalist society which is exactly what people did and which the state did nothing to stop and all these experts that kept coming to Albania also did nothing to stop because it was seen as part of the way of uh, making these reforms work at one point in 97 two-thirds of the country had deposited their savings in these uh, ponzi schemes pyramid schemes which could all deliver for the first generation of people who'd done this, but afterwards stopped being able to deliver and turned insolvent. And that was the point at which the country descended in complete collapse and was on the brink of the civil war because everybody lost their savings. There were people who had sold their houses to deposit their money and everyone was claiming this money back from the state. The state was unable to provide it. And so then people were looting weapons for depots. So yeah, there was a general condition of anarchy. And this was the year in which I was studying from my final year exams in school, in high school. And then everyone is trying to get out of the country. How did your family get out? My mom left with a boat. So she was just, there was a boat. She was on the beach at some point. People were just running away from the weapons and the people shooting and so on. And they saw this boat that was smuggling people to Italy and they just jumped on it and ended up on a refugee camp in the south of Italy in Bari. I left a little bit later when the situation was a bit more stable and things had started to get back under control, also as a result of the arrival of an international peacekeeping force. And so I went to join her and my brother to study at university. But it was a choice and a decision that kind of came as a result of these months of chaos and insecurity and really risk for one's own life at the period. This is beyond the topic of your book, but how is Albania doing today? I think it's similar to a number of these now East European or Balkan countries in transition. It's a country that is trying to, in some ways, still continue its state building project that it, that it started because it's still a young state. And it's a country that faces, I think, all the problems of liberal capitalist markets that are known everywhere. And so as a, in a way also responds to crises that are not just its own crisis, but also global, of the kind that we all know that are familiar also from Western countries and Western societies. It uh, aspires to join the European Union. And so it's often in this battle of trying to integrate in the European market and having to do certain things to perform certain things to get there. And uh, often in this process of negotiation, because the project itself is somewhat halted in the European Union countries as a result also of domestic pressure from nationalistic forces and so on. And that entire battle with EU institutions and with international agencies still shapes the fate of the country and still pervades the politics of the country and means that sometimes I think there is less perhaps democratic debate of a vibrant kind that would be needed to take country forward because uh, everyone lives in the shadow of this big, great promise, promise of joining the EU. And that's sort of somewhat similar, I think, to other European states in transition. I learned of you through the uh, lunch of the FT, uh, and the FT reporter was, it seemed like he's trying to get you to endorse liberalism as the better system. And you, right. you resisted. And now you, you teach Marx, study Marx. Um, how did you yeah. not sour completely on Marx as a result of this experience? 
I think the thing is I had actually soured and then and in fact when I left Albania to study philosophy I had promised to my parents that I was going to study philosophy that I was interested in this world of ideas and so on but that that did not mean studying Marx and so it's kind of ironic that I ended up studying Marx anyway but in part I got to Marx through the history of philosophy and through engagement with other traditions other ways of thinking about politics and society and when I got to it I simply found some of the critique of capitalism that Marx presented quite plausible and also somewhat reflecting on my own experiences of capitalism and what was wrong with capitalist market societies so there was a sense in which I had to engage with this tradition both for personal reasons to try and detect you know what how could this theory be misappropriated how was it uh, used in this context and why is it that it turned out this way in eastern Europe more generally but in Albania more specifically but also to engage with it as a theory from which you could learn uh, in terms of criticizing the societies that you live in and that's where I am very much right now so I'm neither as I said to the FT, I'm neither a convert, I don't think Marx is a saint, but I don't think he's uh, the problem either. So I'm somewhat more reflexive and trying to just use all these authors in this tradition as ways in which we can develop our own reflection for the future and for the world. You grew up surrounded by disappointments. There was a disappointment of socialism that just didn't deliver what it promised to be, but then the, the transition and the liberalization also didn't deliver what they promised to be. How did you cope with these twin disillusionments and, uh, and emerge not totally cynical? Although I see it very much like that, I see it as two sources of disappointment. Sometimes I talk to my fellow nationals in Albania and they they see one as an obvious disappointment, kind of communist period, and then they see the other as also disappointment, but somewhat keep their faith that it will maybe deliver in the future and so on. And I'm much more skeptical about both of these things. I'm much more radical critic of the society that I live in. But I think the way I managed to cope was by recovering this kind of third conception of freedom, I guess, that the book also tries to explore, which is my grandmother's conception of freedom, which is a conception of moral freedom that is not tied to any particular ideological apparatus and that is there as the kind of core of human dignity and the core of humanity on the basis of which you can then construct critiques of society. So there is this conception of what I call freedom as moral agency. We are free to the extent that we are able to make moral choices. But that freedom that we recover inside is also what helps us be critical of the societies that we live and want to see those societies realize those freedoms also at the level of political and human relations. And so I think that's what saves me from being completely destructive and and nihilist and skeptical uh, is this idea that, you know, there is a dimension of freedom that we still have within us but that no society fully captures and that it's really important to try and realize at the social level and to make it part of an alternative political project. That's Leah Upi, author of Free, A Child in a Country at the End of History, published by Norton. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, an eerie rendition performed live by Nick Lowe on KGSR Radio Austin back in 1995. Lowe, an is getting serious here, wrote it in 1974 for his old band Brinsley Schwartz, and Elvis Costello made it famous four years later. The message, though, seems sadly timeless. Till next week, bye. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light in the darkness of insanity Oh yeah, I ask myself Is all hope gone? Is there only pain, hatred and misery? And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding? What's so funny about peace, love, understanding?